where am I on my journey and what now is relevant, whether I be yeah. a coach or an athlete, to recognise that when I'm 20, it's different to when I'm 30 or 40, because I've changed, because society has changed, because the opposition has changed, because science has changed. So there's the what's needed now. I keep some of the things that have worked well for me, but stay curious as well mm. in that things are changing and nothing stays still. So what is the most context-specific things I now need? All right, well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Well, welcome back to many of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name's Steve Ingham, and I'm a scientist dedicated to supporting people to progress and achieve performance, having journeyed with many elite athletes and coaches and led and developed many high-performance teams over the years and now director of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learned from sport, business and education to a wider community of people, teams and industries hoping to find a better way to create performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to dig into the principles, the complexities, the subtleties and value behind this notion of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for achievement, for a rich experience of climbing higher, for purpose and for meaning. And I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who've achieved right at the top end of performance, those people who've been a driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. And so we're founded in sport, but equally we're keen to explore performance in many other industries, such as the arts, business, military, education, and so many others that are supporting and championing an idea, a goal, other people, or a cause. Thank you so much for your responses to the last episode on stress adaptation. Uh, This tweet from Kevin Picard at KevinPicard88 on Twitter was my favourite. Great stuff as always. Coaches, this sort of thing is a must in particular achieving adaptation for the same system using multiple approaches, vital for coaches to maintain the interest of their athletes, as well, of course, achieving the desired outcome. So thanks, Kevin. And so to this week's discussion, it's another panel. Uh, This one's our sixth one of the year. So far, we've explored the rise of the UK high performance system. We've explored high performance culture, uh, lessons from the front line, and the stress adaptation in the last episode. And so this week we explore sustaining performance. And again, I'm joined by Jamie Pringle from Performance Science Distillery and Rosie Mays from the EB Centre. So the discussion is one of a series of ambiguities, almost polar perspectives. One of the tensions, for example, that we come across is that in order to sustain performance is to recognise that what has actually got you to the top. That's essential in underpinning your performance, bolstering your self-confidence versus actually requiring you to also stay open-minded. That what got you to the top yesterday isn't necessarily what's going to get you to the top again and again as you age, as competition changes and as your priorities change through life. Another tension we explore is whether to sustain performance you need to pour more elements in, actually looking for new ideas or whether you need to focus on doing the basics and develop sophistication in those. These tensions not only exist for athletes, but for the coaches, the directors, and people who support and journey with athletes, whose own career will span beyond and over multiple athlete careers. The need here is to know your stuff, but to remain curious to new ideas 
and how critical debriefing is to instilling the daily habits to be sure that you're drawing out the lessons, whether it's from losses or from successes. This discussion is just as rich as all the other panel discussions, but this one's got some tangibles in it, but it's also got some deep and challenging philosophy about how we perform, how we engage with others, and the very concept of maintaining excellence over the long-term arc of our lives. Today we're going to be discussing sustaining high performance. So, uh, Jamie, let me throw this one to you. Uh, Can you think of some high-performing athletes that have kept their careers going by sustaining their preparation and their performance methods? Yeah, I think where we're coming from with this, the the thing that sticks in my mind is when you see athletes who make a step change in their performance, even when they're at the top of their game. And um, I was thinking around some of the examples, some of them from the British Olympic and Paralympic network, where they're in those sort of sports, but also in team sports and football, where you've got players or athletes who, yes, they reach the top of their kind of career in a domestic stage and then put themselves out there internationally, go and play for a foreign team, go and you're David Beckham, going from Manchester United, going to um, Madrid. And it struck me that there's something in this around that transition, that kind of uh, ambition that they have of always trying to better themselves, what that actually might mean from a physical point of view as well. So I was looking at that from a physical, physiological point of view. You might have reached a plateau in your fitness, in your performance, in your physicality. And it's not by doing something different uh, that you're getting uh, the next level, but it's by changing the environment around you that you're competing and training with people who are faster than you, people who are better than you. So I think that's for me was um, thinking of the various examples of where people have just said, right, I'm comfortable here and I'm going to take a controlled risk, if you like, by stepping out of this into a different environment with different people. And that's what's led to their, you know, their step change in their improvement, that rite of passage that they've had to go through. So we've had recent examples of someone like Roger Federer, who's actively taken time out in his schedule to not only sort out the injuries through surgery, for example, but invest more in in rest so that he can continue to sustain his performance, do do well at a a major competition as opposed to holding uh, a a level of performance throughout the year. Yeah, that's an example of someone who's at the very top of his game in a sport where you know you're by yourself that's you you know it's not a team sport it's you as an individual and it struck me even even though that might be someone at the very top of the game you've got those individuals who are coming at various stages in their career but what they've done is taken themselves from their normal environment if you want to call it that into a different environment with different people around them or different environmental um and different potentially even different cultures that are that are around them so I don't think it necessarily has to apply right at the top end of the sport. I think it could be anywhere. I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated from a, from a psychosociological perspective, but also from a physical perspective. You know, the idea that you can train potentially, potentially more intensely, more specifically, with more volume, with more purpose, and it just moves you on. And you might not have to even go back to that. It's just the fact you've been through that rite of passage has moved you and your physical um, status on. So the, the different stages of a, a high performer in their early career, they might be achieving in their lo- local environment and then they step up to a, a national level and then they've, they've, there are all these 
equally talented people and they've got to step up again. Mm. Um, so I mean, you, you mentioned there, perhaps we can get into the mental side of how that feels in each of the stages, but you mentioned there about the physical changes that happen in those early career moments, that stepping up, whether that's training volume, yeah. reference rest towards the back end of a career. What's, what's happening physically throughout someone's high performance journey that, yeah. that they've got to really tune into? Well, I think if you, if you took at it from that real uh, sort of training structure, periodization and planning, you, you could, we could talk about periodization models and a, you know, the idea of what happens within a season and what you do in certain parts of the season to build for the next bit. But now we're talking looking even broader than that, and it's not just maybe an Olympic cycle, but it's actually a career. That what you're doing early in your career might be anatomically setting you up because it's changing the structures, that it's changing sarcomere uh, properties, it's changing what's going on at mitochondrial level, and that might be then setting you up for being able to handle more training in the next okay. year. I always um, one of the examples I always get think of because it's one of those sharp examples where people either uh, fly or fall is when you send athletes on altitude training camps, uh, you know, the kind of your high volume endurance athlete, going off to the mountains where it's all about training for a month, you know, and you're in that environment where everybody else around you is doing the same thing. Some people really thrive in that, and it's a real rite of passage, that season got it in the bank. Some people crash and burn. Some of those people who crash and burn come back the next year and thrive, and there's almost that, that I had to go through this last year because now I've figured okay. out I figured it out for myself of how I how I train, how I recover, and that so that real self management aspect mm. of it, which is a real skill of mm. you know being an athlete, also being a coach and being able to uh, allow that journey of discovery, that learning to happen for that individual. And it struck me, you know, I, I remember um, working with um, a coach who's kind of his conversation with new athletes coming onto the program would be, just tell me, you know, when you've gone to the extremes, when have you done the most volume you've ever done? Or when have you trained the most intensely that you've ever done? And just having those anchor points in your mind of, oh yeah, I remember a year ago we did, you know, 20 hours a week and we normally do 10. Now, of course, if you did 20 hours a week and you normally did 10, you might crack yourself. But you know what that felt like. You know what that was like to manage. You knew the fact that you were just tired all the time. So you've been there. You know what that territory yeah. looks like. There's a nice example in the strength and conditioning world where they, they were, I'm not quite sure the phrase of it, but you have to graduate from each stage. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. You, you don't get to go and do that type of conditioning until you've achieved the quality of movement, not necessarily the load, but the quality of movement required yes. for these exercises. And once you've got that mastered and nailed down and, and demonstrated that over a period, you then graduate. Competencies. Yeah, so it's it's not um, it's not the case of well, I'm on the senior team, I should be training that way. Mm. It's when you've achieved that capability, yes. then you move yeah. up, and that's a nice blend of, of the physical and the psychological. Yes. Because the I suppose a parallel example might be if you're at school, if you can't do those sums, you get held back a year. That's not that's not the way it's framed. It's a case mm. of. Once you've achieved this, you you get to graduate. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it goes back to the rite of passage, isn't it? You know, in, in how does the young child become the adult? Yeah, and I think you could see that. Put yourself on the mindset of the mind of the coach, and you kind of know what that journey is going to look like because there'll be plenty of examples that you will have seen where that type of individual will thrive in those type of, and they'll make that step change. But you still can't tell that to somebody and say you need to do this. They have to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They have to have 
gone and trained with a group that's faster than them. Gone and trained. I, I like the example of Elise Christie, the uh, short track speed skater, you know, the best female speed skater in our country, but not having the depth and, and breadth of um, others to compete with mm. um, at an equal level because she'll outrace them all. So she goes and trains with the guys she, and she learns how to lose. She learns how to get beaten. She learns, well, probably she learns how to win in more ways. Yes, yeah. So it becomes a real, I don't know if that's a rite of passage, but it's certainly a, a phase where, and you know, t taking it to the extreme, she spends a couple of months in Korea in a, in a country where that sport is a, a, you know, a very big sport and where the next Winter Olympics will be next year. And so she's now embracing the culture of that mm -hmm. and actually seeing it from all different perspectives. It's, it's critical thinking. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's figuring out not just how do I do something, but how could I do this differently, better? How, where could I find fault with this as well as find the yeah. success with it yeah. as well? I'm interested in that as a concept and that well, not knowing Elise is in her, her situation, but she's she's had a she's had her Nadia in the in that Sochi Games where it started to unfold and the performances didn't come, but she was tipped to, to get a medal. Mm. Potentially being the the thing that accelerated her to search for another way of of creating performance. So. In that sense, there's a there's a reason there's a there's a, a foundation. I didn't it didn't go well here. I've got to change. Yeah. And, um, I think so many athletes have had an injury or overtraining from which they've learned and become wiser. Yeah. Um, my my experience of working with Steve Redgrave at the latter end of his career, um, he just just found out he had diabetes, but was still really certain about the way he creates performance. I know what works for me. Um, it, I've, I've done it at four Olympic Games mm. beforehand, so don't tell me <laughs> your special method's gonna work, mm. except for the fact that it, he struggled to then start to manage his blood sugar. There was a lot of competition suddenly from lottery funding. Um, so there are a number of factors that converge to say, well, I'm gonna have to change yeah. in response to the risks and staying vigilant to those. Sometimes we often need the the upset, the disappointment to to kick us on. Mm. And I, I like it from a physical perspective, but I like particularly around the skill and tactical aspects. You know, when you've got an individual or a team who are, have a tactical element about their performance and they're learning how to win in more ways. That kind of classic kind of thing. You, Eddie Jones talks about it of you know winning badly, but you're still winning. Mm. You know, you haven't really, he, he'll make his judgment on the performance, whether they've achieved the process goals that they wanted to, and if they haven't, it wasn't as good as it could have been, but we still won, because we yes. can find ways of winning. And I like that sort of, that mentality. Um, but I'm, I'm also then pulling that back into, just like day to day, what does that mean in going into training? You know, if that, what does that mean? If this is the session I'm gonna do this morning. What's my mindset of going into this? It's actually figuring out other ways to achieve it. It's figuring out other ways how to, uh, how to improve yourself. Um, mm. So it's not a rite of passage necessarily, it's a phase of life, but it's just a, it's a mindset of, I'm trying to figure this out better for myself. Mm. Just mm. gotta go through it, potentially. And I think the parallel there is for the coach as well, isn't it? In terms of them going through the similar, how do I keep learning? How do I keep getting curious about my craft and my yeah. skill and my science to enable others to perform? You know, and I think when you get the, the matching of the curious coach and the, you know, seeking anything for, for a change along with the athlete, then you've got the, the magic combination.
Is it, okay, Rosie, I'll ask you that question. Curious is a really nice word. Curiosity being the driver there. Does it have to have consequence as well, though? Because I'm curious about things because I'm a nerd and I like to discover <laughs> stuff. But when something has a consequence, as in I need to do this because someone else is expecting something from me, or there's a, uh, take it the other way, there's a, you know, there's a funding decision on the line here. You know, I've got to get this performance, otherwise I'm not going to have my career next year. Consequence becomes a much heavier weight. Does that pull in the right direction or can that be a, a more of an anchor? I think in our, it, it, what I heard from the question is... is I don't know what my question was. <laughs> is, well you, <laughs> you heard a question? Yeah. Oh my goodness. You're a I can, pioneer. I, I, <laughs> I'm an explorer. <laughs> so can you have curiosity with an, uh, an outcome? And I, uh, the parallel I had is can you have creativity and it not be innovative? So yeah. if you want innovation, you have to have creativity. Yes. You can have creativity without being innovative because you don't take it to an end that leads to something. We can all be creative, but nothing will come of it unless we go, actually, I want to turn it into yeah. something. So I think that that's what I heard is curiosity, I think, is, is definitely needed. Curiosity for curiosity's sake, you could call that daydreaming or being nosy. Yeah. I think for me in the elite high performance world, how do you get that curiosity aligned to purpose? How do you get that curiosity that says, if we want to get better, we have to be curious. But Does do, that make do you sense? not think the, cl the clever and the potentially the successful coach knows what that looks like and knows what that bigger, almost landscape looks like and knows that this athlete needs to go and visit over here? Quite, quite literally needs to go out outside of their normal geographical circumstances and go and visit that group and train with them for a while. It, they'll become curious, but that brings a consequence that the athlete might not see, but you've designed it into the, into the journey that it's stepping stones. I'm yeah. stretching a metaphor, but it, it's ways that you know, brings the athlete back to their normal thing and they go, I wouldn't be like this today if I, unless I had been through that process, that experience. Yeah, I think that lo not losing sight of the core principles that serve you well, yeah. Yeah. but being flexible and adjustable about around the, the way in which you deliver that. So the question for me is how much of your potential as a scientist, as an applied scientist, do you think has been used at the moment in the British sporting system? Well, my knowledge, as in what's in here, my experience is a tiny fraction of everybody else's and so of course we'll have overlaps because we think about the same things as physiologists as scientists but it's that collective the harnessing the collective intelligence you know making better ultimately what we need to do as scientists is help coaches make better decisions you know our, our work in the high performance thing as um, network is to say here's the coach we need to support them to let them make better decisions so that focus of all that information intelligence and best practice has to come through a very narrow connection point to that coach at that moment in time for that purpose for that athlete that team for that scenario um, for that environment and that means that filter has to be really really good you know the athlete a coach are not going to think of performance as disciplines of nutrition physiology psychology performance analysis they think it as their performance their training so we have to have that interdisciplinary mindset you know, we are specialists our, in our own discipline, and that's where you have your professional practice. Yes. But you have to think in an interdisciplinary mindset to make it really stick yeah, around. You need to have the expertise and knowledge that is in excess of what is required yes. yeah. in some ways. Um, and that's not just 
the tangible bits of knowledge, do you know X and Y? It's, but it's also m meshed with the mindset of interconnecting diverse fields and, and saying we could take that from this and draw it over here and this might be our best guess. Plus the fact that elite athletes are continually shifting and changing throughout their, well as every athlete is, they're changing from every single day. Mm. Their needs are different. So that, that shifting movement is, uh, is something you have to tune into all the time. What's, what's going to work well for an athlete in their early career might not be what they need in their latter career. Yet the skillful professional and coach and leader will have to work with the different mindset that will change when someone's an achiever or when someone's aspiring. Yeah. So, so you're, you're continually having to work with, with that. So if you, it's a, for me, the, the comparison would be if, you, if you're an astronaut in a rocket and thinking the guys, guys back at base, they, they don't know quite enough. I wouldn't feel good. <laughs> <laughs> or if yeah, I knew, yeah. they know enough. Yeah. And, they, and if I've got a problem, they'll solve it. Quite like yes. that. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah that. that's great. Uh, and therefore, there, there is a, <laughs> like a need that. for you to continue to increase your, or keep up to date with the core yeah. knowledge. Yeah. But what I'm hearing is, for you two, a real key strength of what you did and still do will be the application of that and the interface with the human in the coach or the athlete that you're working Massively with. Massively so, and I think it's, it's a reasonably privileged position to be kind of working with a, in, a, in a performance environment where you've got an individual, where you're basically, this definition of applying science, because mm. you've got, you're applying it to people and scenarios where they don't need to know the detail. Yeah. They have to trust that what you're suggesting, what you're telling, what you're advising, what you're helping with is the right advice. But we are, like I was saying before, we're coming hopefully behind us, you look behind, can you tell me a bit more about this? Yes, there's a wealth of knowledge yes. that will hopefully sit behind that and you've got to be the filter for that. Um, trying to hold on to that that's behind is, 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 is sometimes quite hard. You know, that's the, why I say it's a privilege because you're sort of straddling between the two but you have to immerse yourself at the front line of performance yeah. to understand how something's going to stick around, how it's going to make a difference and then you have to go back into the fundamental science and figure out the, you know, asking better questions. Yes. Not getting better answers but asking better questions. Um, and working that dimension is, is exciting. Um, in my experience, Rosie, when you see successful practitioners, it's not because of their technical skill set. Yeah. That's almost yeah. kind of taken for granted yeah. that they know their stuff yes. and they're good at what they do. What they are very good at is being able to understand the moment, the scenario, the need, the purpose, and the relationship and the dynamics of people and able to take out the locker, the right thing at the right time for the right moment. Yeah, and, and I'm hearing, and that requires a whole educational, um, professional development of the scientist to know that it's not about that. It's not about their knowledge, it's the application. Yeah. And but therefore, I'm, I'm checking, if you've got lots of knowledge, you could come in frustrated in not being able to impart it if you've totally, not managed totally. the expectation yeah. of the very bright yeah. PhD who now can't actually tell them what he thinks they need to know. Or yeah, and I think in, in some senses when we talk about rite of passage for an athlete, then there's a similar thing for a, a scientist, practitioner, uh, and potentially even for a coach that they realise it's not the knowledge they have, it's, it's what they're doing with it and how they're applying it. Yeah. And I think that's something which I don't know you can necessarily teach 
I don't think you can. I think you have to build an environment or build a process where that person can go through that rite of passage and actually figure it out for themselves. And hopefully with not failing and bringing everybody else around them, crushing down. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that A is knowing stuff, B is being able to skillfully work with people, but, but C is the problem solver, the, the innovator. The, we don't know the answer and doesn't matter how we get on, but we've got to work this out. We've, yeah. got, to, mm. we've got to understand the, the future solutions. Yeah. So I'm keen to dive into this idea about open-mindedness, that, that career journey that you experience as either an athlete but also working with an athlete. They're, they're going to be quite open-minded and they're going off to those training camps and seeing other people doing things. They're going to be always compelled to change and adapt and maybe copy. Mm. Um, but later in their career, perhaps as they achieve, that that might start to shut down a little bit. The, the, the natural, natural inclination is they're not going to be experimenting when they're trying to, to sustain at a high level. That's quite a tricky pulse to work with. Mm. What, are your, what are your thoughts? I, I was, as you're, literally as you were talking, I was thinking well, there's two different types of open-mindedness in, in my reflection on human development. There'll be that... Curiosity, open-mindedness of the youth, mm. trying things out, and then you work out that there there are shortcuts to life or shortcuts to certain things that work, and then you get set in, set in your ways. So you know whether it's the grumpy old men or the grumpy old women who said, "Well, in our day it was like this," mm. and and your open-mindedness is closed down. Then, therefore, the open-mindedness at that later part of life, I think, is stimulated by something different I think early life it's curiosity it's exploring it's trying new things in later life it's getting a sense of who you are and what you do and how things work and there's a wisdom with that with that open-mindedness at a later life I think as to how are things going to be different how can I use my wisdom to do things with less effort more mm. efficiently towards something that really matters to me. So that's what that triggered in me, is, mm. is a different kind of open-mindedness at mm. different stages in, in one's life. And part, part of that could be that as they become more accustomed to their identity and, and more sure, that they, as the career starts to tail off, they want to hang on to yes. that. And yeah. so that might be the, yes. the, the spirit that yeah. causes them to look again. Yes, yeah. How do I get the performance gains when the advantage I had in youth is mm. no longer available to me because mm. I'm, I'm older mm. and I've got diabetes or you have to look elsewhere for, for how to sustain or how to maintain. Yeah. Mm. Uh, just picking up on what you were saying around efficiency, that's an interesting uh, physical aspect because that's what you see with um, the, the human sort of energetic racing performer. Mm is that their, you know, their physiological capacity might actually get start to peter off as they go through their career, but their efficiency and the way they actually deliver that, you know, the way their running style, their speed on the road, the way they connect with the pedal, the way, the way they pull the oar, they become more efficient. Yeah. And that's very clear to see um, in experienced athletes and high-volume um, high athletes as they go through their career. So there's that kind of aspect of the exploration there becomes, yeah, what I had 10 years ago, I'm hanging on to but yes. what I've got now is a different kind of aspect of my performance um, just going back to what you were saying there Steve I, I was when you were saying I was thinking around the idea of the role models that you can have in your training environment we've all come into something where it's new be it a, 
a physical training environment, a competitive environment, or a new workforce, where you see very quickly who the role models are. They might not necessarily be the leaders, but they have a, a role that's very clear and you go, I quite like that. And you see that and you get inspired and that's the curiosity coming mm -hmm. out in the way that you think. Like the way you do something, the way you represent something or the way you think it might be. And so I think the clever performer and the clever coach can set that environment up, set that training group up, where those aspects are there, those potentially those elder individuals of the group or the more experienced people can offer that. They might not yeah. even realize they're doing yeah. it. But they are, they're offering a component to the group that becomes a, a kind of a, a role model, a quieter icon. I think I'm picking up on, on how you structure the, the, the sessions. I think that's, that is something you can invest in uh, on a day-to-day -day basis that, that sets you up for sustaining high performance later on. And that, that could be something as simple as sitting down with an athlete and say, how do you think that went? Mm -hmm. Um, okay, what didn't go so well? Uh, what did go so well? And so you're naturally doing that simple reflection. But if you don't do that, then later on when you start saying, right, what didn't go so well? It, it's, it's, it becomes alien. Yes. Or it becomes, yes. feels like a, cri a criticism or a, a, another exercise that we're doing later in, and this is different now. Oh, yes. um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm interpreting that as how do we good in, put in place good habits yes. early on? And if our style of coaching is dictatorial and we tell all the time, we take away the opportunity for them to learn. Mm. But if our style and we, and we commit to a style that is inquisitive and that gets the athlete to seek the answers themselves, then I think that's what, that's what we're doing there. We're putting in place good habits mm. that my experience of most of the elite coaches are coaching people who are even better than them anyway. So yes. you can't tell <laughs> anymore. You know, you, ha you often don't have the wisdom mm. that is needed. You, you do need to be asking the reflective question. Well, uh, we might have talked about this previously around the, the idea that, you know, when you come from a coaching or practitioner point of view, your experience in the sport as a performer can often add a lot of credibility to your voice as an advisor. Mm. But not always, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily. And we've got really good examples of people in the, the British high performance system where they've become very successful coaches have never competed in that sport. Mm. Now, I think if you went back 25, 30 years, you probably wouldn't see many examples of that. Yeah. But you see more examples now. And, you know, there's the idea that some very good scientists who have put the coaching hat on and flourished as a coach. Some very good coaches who have taken on a scientific thinking and, you know, got the, uh, the upskilling and they can apply it both ways, so they can flex that, um, those two roles. Uh, but I would, I'm really intrigued as to how does the athlete see that? How does the coach see that when you know, the scientist comes in and says, you've never worked in that sport before. Yeah, but I know about the human body. You know, I know mm -hmm. how your body works. I know how, uh, you, how the physical, physiological adaptation to exercise occurs. And just having the trust to be able to say, well, I believe you, and mm -hmm. we can harness mm -hmm. that. And I think that's, I won't go down that line, because I think that brings a level of curiosity that you can bring into the sport as a practitioner. You're figuring out the sport, but you're figuring it out in this case from understanding the basics, the component parts of it. You might never get the opportunity to have that discussion though, mm -hmm. if somebody doesn't trust you or yes, believe you, yeah. and let you come in and say, you've never been around this type of athlete before, have you? And I'm not sure you know what, how to you know, yeah. behave and, yeah. and um, operate in this world. That, that's... Uh that's a situation where you, that's the initial engagement, isn't it, really? That's, that's getting into the, how do I convince someone to, to accept me and listen 
and work with me. But we've talked about those losing moments being the crucible decision makers of thinking, I've got to change. You know, the, mm. the least Christie example you gave, you know, Mo Farah turning up to several Olympics and, and just not getting the result he wanted, and that caused him to, to go back to basics. Um, how, how do you create that when, when things are going well? Oh, well, that, what that triggers for me is I think you get the, the coaches who probably deem themselves as lucky as they've got that athlete who just does that anyway and just continues and continues and wants to beat records and wants to beat records. Uh, I think the challenge is, is where maybe you've got someone who doesn't know they can or want to or right. and therefore how do, how do you find the button to press? I mean, that's just my perspective on it. I think that's really, that's really, really true. I can think of lots of examples where you know that that athlete physically, for example, is incredibly talented, potentially more so than this other person mm -hmm. over here, but this person over here has figured out a way to win. Yeah. And maybe they've figured out a discipline of how to apply themselves to get themselves in a position of being yes. able to win. And this person, I'm not saying this person wasted their talent, but they've just not figured out how to unlock all the components yeah. of it. A, a lot of a lot of coaches, I coach coaches, coach sports coaches, and a lot of coaches have said to me, you know, how, how long do you invest in people knowing that they've got the talent <laughs> and whether they're going to turn the corner yeah. as, as the athlete? And when, when's the time when you as a coach go, I'm not able to unlock that for you? Here's a challenge as well in, in that this kind of current day and age, if you like, of our funding system is built around steady progressive uh, improvement from year on year and cycle on cycle. And that patience of knowing, actually, you know what, this year you didn't quite make those performances, but you're still improving, and I can see that. So what are your metrics you're seeing yeah. that with it, to be able to make those decisions? But do we have a risk that within our funding model or our performance funding model, that that actually doesn't get identified and valued as much because by the time you've given that person the opportunity to explore and figure it out for themselves, mm. they're off funding. And that's you know that's uh, just because they're not hit a you know a matrix a, a metric a benchmark in, in a document that says you will achieve these performances. Oh, I'm sorry, but I was trying to figure out how. That's such a huge pull for a coach of thinking I need short-term results mm. because results are the currency to for further change and mm. further investment mm. or training camps or attracting more talent. Mm. Um, as soon as you start investing in 10 years down the line, you're, you're taking away from mm. today and tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't invest further down the line, you're, you're going to be making probably poorer decisions based yeah. on a short-term gain. That's, that's felt, I think, at all levels, yeah. but most keenly as a coach, working with someone, wanting them to, to help achieve. Um, so that, that's, um, that's a difficult one for people to hold, yes. really. Yeah. So, I'm keen to, to draw this out now. So if we're sustaining high performance, what would be our top tips from lessons from the performance community? Uh, the curiosity is the word that still stands out from what we just discussed of figuring out what that means as a coach, as a performer, as a scientist, always being able to have that moment to reflect and go back, this is interesting, isn't it? And actually figuring out and learning a bit more. And I think as a performer, that means getting out of your, um, not getting out of it, but seeing the, the world around you, quite literally going and spending time in other, other environments to generate that curiosity. I think that still applies as a practitioner. The big, biggest learnings you have are where you go out and see other people apply their trade and you can take lessons from it. 
maybe even do the same thing that you do that you do as your in your practice, but they do it with a different environment, a different team, a different group. And that for me is curiosity. That certainly appeals to me. Whether it's the right message for everybody else, that's the bit yeah. I would do. Okay, yeah. that's how I'd work it. Yeah, mm. I, I'd I'd throw in another C word, which is context. <laughs> which is where am I on my journey, and what now is relevant? Whether I be yeah. a coach or an athlete, to recognise that when I'm 20, it's different to when I'm 30 or 40 because I've changed, because society has changed, because the opposition has changed, because science has changed. So there's the what's needed now. I keep some of the things that have worked well for me, but stay curious as well mm. in that things are changing and nothing stays still. So what is the most context-specific things I now need as I go through my journey? Mm. So uh, that, that old adage of what's, what's got you there is not necessarily yeah. what you need in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that that really jarring against the need to stay yes safe and yeah. in that comfort zone, but prospect and yeah. and look forward. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much, Jamie and Rosie. Pleasure. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Pringle and Rosie at Rosie Mays forty nine, and you can follow me at Ingham underscore Steve and the wider supporting champions content at support underscore champs. You can follow us also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and subscribe through supportingchampions.co.uk. 